And welcome to worship. This is our a time when we come. This is for the Lord's, the Lord's benefit, not ours. Well, it is ours to a certain degree, but that's why we're here today is to worship and love and praise and adore Him. I'd like to welcome any of you here who are here for the first time. Thank you for coming and visiting us. Uh, we would ask you but one thing, and that is, is if you're here for the first time, that you would just simply fill out your registration card and drop it in the sock when it comes by at the end of the service. That would be, that would be all that we would ask. A few announcements about things that are coming up here this week. And the first thing is, is that there really aren't going to be any activities here on campus this week. The, uh, the office will be closed on Tuesday and Wednesday and, and not a lot of uh, activities. Okay, see this ski snowboard outing? All church snowboard skiing night at Mountain High this Thursday. Guess what? There's no snow. <laughs> Actually, there's ice. So if you wanted to bring your, uh, your ice skates, you could probably do it. But we're actually going to put this off for a couple of weeks until we actually get some of that white stuff coming down. And if you have any questions about that, you can talk to Pastor Shane and he can fill you in on, on any of the details as to when it's going to happen. And we'll announce it again. Uh, also, there's a, a Ladies Friday Fellowship, a welcome. Um, and that's this Friday at 9.15 a.m. at the home of Linda Clemente. And you, any of you ladies can come and get to know some of the other ladies within the church. And there are directions in the bulletin how to get over to Linda's house. And ladies, I also have a New Year's hike. Doesn't that sound fun? The Santa Rosa Plateau, which if any of you have been up there, it's absolutely beautiful this time of year. This Saturday, we'll meet at the RBC parking lot here at 8.30, and then they'll, they'll take off from here. A bit of a, of a sad note, but a good note, and that is, is that Phil Beckman went home to be with the Lord. There's a picture of Phil and his wife, Johnny. Uh, the memorial services will be this Saturday, January 4th at 5 p.m. here at RBC. And make sure and have the whole family in prayer as they're you know, mourning the loss of Phil, and we'll miss him too. He's a great guy, and we, uh, we love him very much, and we'll miss uh, having him here in our midst. So be in prayer for them. Well, we're going to go right into the Word this morning. So let's uh, let me take a minute and pray for us as we as we bring God's Word. Lord, we're here to worship you, and we're here to worship you even as we listen to your Word. So we all of us ask, myself included, Lord, that you would cause your Word to penetrate our hearts to teach us, to mold us, to cause us to understand your word and apply it in our lives. So, Lord, bring that about for your name's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, many of you here have probably heard the proverbial statement about the only two things in this life that are absolutely assured. Now, do you guys remember what those two things are? (laughs) Death and taxes, exactly. But actually, I think there's a third thing that's absolutely assured in this lifetime, and that is long lines at the DMV. That is absolutely assured. So there are three things. Well, in spite of death, taxes, and long lines at the Department of Motor Vehicles, as Christians, there are pleasant things in this life that we can absolutely be assured of. In our relationship with God, both now and also on into eternity, the Lord has given us Christians lavish assurance of great joy in His presence. And this morning we're going to look at a passage in Romans in which 
the Apostle Paul sought to provide such confidence to the Christians in the church at Rome. But before we look at this passage, we got to look and do some review background of the book of Romans. Paul wrote this letter to a group of believers in Rome, most of whom he had actually never met. And he anticipated actually going and visiting these folks very soon, and this letter actually kind of served as a letter of introduction, sharing with them his understanding of what the gospel was all about. And that's really what the letter of Romans is all about. It's the go- about the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And in the first four chapters of Romans, Paul laid out the details of what this salvation by grace through faith looked like. And in chapters 5 through 8, he expounded on the assurance that this gospel brings into the life of believers. And in the first part of Romans 8, Paul assured his readers that they had been set free from the condemnation of sin by faith in Christ. And in the middle of chapter 8, Paul brought up the subject of the assurance that comes as we realize that we are God's adopted children. And this assurance, this confidence that we have as a result of our adoption is what we're going to look at today. And the title of this morning's message is Our Assurance as God's Adopted Children. And our text is Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. And if you haven't done so already, please pull the message outline from your bulletin and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. And if by chance you didn't bring a Bible, you can look in the seat pocket in front of you, and I suspect you'll probably find one there. Paul said this, he said, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also glorified with him. Now, the first part of the assurance that Paul is speaking of here is in verse 14, where he says, For all who are being led by the sons of God, or led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And in this verse, we see the first point in your outline, and that is the identification of God's adopted children. Now, in this verse, we see that the true sons of God, his true children, are those who are being led by the Spirit. And Paul seems to assume that his readers would understand what this verse means, so he doesn't even bother to really explain the phrase. But we need to kind of figure out what it means. Now, the verse before it, verse 13, actually gives us a clue regarding what Paul is talking about. In verse 13, Paul commented, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So from the immediate, in the immediate context, those who are led by the Spirit seem to be those who are putting to death the sin in their lives by the power of the Spirit. Now, do we ever completely put to death the sin in our lives? Unfortunately, no, we don't. 
Now, someday when we see Jesus, we will be sinless just like he is, and may that day come soon. But that day's in the future. So the idea being behind being led by the Spirit seems to be who's calling the shots in a person's life. A person who's being led by the Spirit seems to be living to please the Lord and seeking Him rather than living to please themselves. And you see that word led in verse 14? The verb tense in this word has the idea behind it of being of being continuously led by the Spirit. So truly being led by the Spirit is an ongoing process of submission to the Lord, trusting Him to put to death the sin in our lives. Referring to your outline, those who are being led by the Spirit as an ongoing action are identified as God's true children. Now, a person who is led by the Spirit will produce good spiritual fruit in their lives. Paul uses this phrase, led by the Spirit, in another one of his letters. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul comments, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then in verses 19 through 21, he goes on to talk about the deeds of the flesh. And in verses 22 through 23, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So the results of living in submission to the Holy Spirit is a growing manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in a person's life. The Apostle says this, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So referring to your outline, being led by the Spirit means that a person is seeking to live in submission to the will of the Holy Spirit, rather than seeking to please themselves. The result will be a growing manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. How might you and I tell if we're being led by the Spirit? Probably the easiest way would be to examine our own lives and see if the fruit of the Spirit is present in some measure and growing as well. Are you and I progressively seeing more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on and so forth in our lives? If so, then we truly are God's children. If there is no evidence whatsoever of this fruit in their lives and no growth in those particular things, then a person such as that would do well to heed Paul's admonition in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, when he says, Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. And if you find that you fail this test, then today is the day to repent, to put your faith in Christ and begin living in submission to the Holy Spirit. If there's any concern about this, I would count it a privilege to talk to you personally after the service so that you might put this important issue behind you and get it right once for all. So having looked at the identification of God's adopted children, let's move on and look at the cry of God's adopted children in verse 15, where Paul says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
Now, in this verse, Paul clarifies the implications of being God's child using the metaphor of adoption. First, let's look at what being God's child doesn't mean. Now, being God's child does not mean that we cower in fear before Him like a slave before a wicked master. It doesn't mean that. Most of you have probably seen the the Disney classic feature Cinderella. And the basic storyline is that Cinderella's mother dies and her father remarries. And after this remarriage, then Cinderella's father dies as well. And her, his, her stepmother's true colors finally come out. Cinderella is reduced to the status of a slave in her own house under the harsh hand of her stepmother. And Cinderella's life became literally a living nightmare. Now, if God was anything like Cinderella's stepmother, being adopted into his family would be an absolute nightmare. But praise God, he is not that way. In fact, in God's own words, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and in truth. He is the exact opposite of Cinderella's stepmother. And this compassionate, gracious, patient, and loving God chose us and adopted us as His children from eternity past. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. And if there be any doubt about God's great love for us, Paul continues on in Ephesians 1's and eliminates all uncertainty about that. Notice in Ephesians 1.18 what Paul prays for the Ephesian church. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Now in this verse, Paul is essentially praying that the lights would go on, so to speak, in the Ephesians' hearts. And he is praying that the lights would go on about an inheritance. Now, whose inheritance is Paul talking about in this verse? Whose inheritance? What does it say? His inheritance. Whose inheritance? It's God's inheritance that's being talked about in this in this verse. Now, according to this verse, what is God's inheritance? Look at the very end. It's the saints. You see, it's us. The creator of the universe, the one who owns everything and could have anything that he desires has chosen one thing to be His inheritance. You and me. And I don't know about you, that is staggering. You know, and occasionally we sing a song that really drives this mind-blowing reality home. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That He would give His only Son to make 
a wretch, his treasure. And that's what we are. Not only has our God graciously adopted us into his family, we are his dear treasure. And because of God's vast love for us, having adopted us as his dearly loved children, it only makes sense that he would welcome us crying to him, Abba, Father! Now that word Abba in Aram is an Aramaic word and it has the connotation behind it of intimacy and tenderness and dependence and a complete lack of fear. In English, it would be like addressing God as, as Daddy. And according to our text, the Holy Spirit encourages this address. And in light of our adoption by the God who loves us, addressing Him with the loving cry of Abba, Father, is entirely appropriate. And I'm convinced that it warms His heart when we do that. Referring to your outline, the Lord has graciously adopted us into His own family and loves us deeply. Because of this, the Holy Spirit encourages us to cry out to our Heavenly Father as our Abba. So we've looked at the identification of God's adopted children, the cry of a God's adopted children. Now let's look at the testimony of God's adopted to God's adopted children, the Spirit's testimony. Verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now the word that Paul uses here, testifies, is actually it's a legal term. And it's used of a witness giving verbal testimony that is in turn used as supporting evidence in a lawsuit. And this is exactly what the Spirit of God does. He gives supporting evidence. He gives testimony that validates that we are indeed God's dearly loved children. So what does this testimony look like? In partial answer to this question, I would like to ask all of you guys a question. And don't be bashful, okay? Do any of you find that you long to be with Jesus? Do any of you find that? Showing of hands? You do, you do. Do any of you find that you're growing in your hatred of sin and in growing in your love for Him? Do you find that? Yeah. You see, those are all part of the work of the Spirit in our lives. And these testify that we are indeed God's children. What does God's Word say is the greatest indicator that we are truly saved and are one of His children? And you guys know what that is? What is the greatest indicator of that? It's love for one another. That's exactly what it is. The Apostle John said this. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who is born of God and knows God, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And the ability to love one another certainly comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the most authoritative testimony that we are indeed God's children. And as a pastor here at RBC, I'm deeply grateful for the love of the saints, the love of you in our body. You know, after each Sunday morning service, it thrills me to go out and look at our patio as it's just packed with people that are fellowshipping and building one another up and loving one another. 
And this is truly an evidence of the Spirit's transforming work in our midst. Referring to your outline, the Spirit's testimony, the supporting evidence that we indeed are God's adopted children, comes in the form of desire to be with Jesus, growing hatred of sin, and a desire and ability to love one another, amongst other things. So in the context of our assurance as God's adopted children, we've looked at the identification of God's children, the cry of God's children, the Spirit's testimony to God's children, and now we will look at the inheritance of God's adopted children. In the first part of verse 17, Paul says this. He says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now the if in the first part of this verse is more like the word because. We've already established that those who become partakers of God's grace through faith in Jesus These are God's children. So Paul is saying that because we are God's children, then we are also heirs. Now, what is an heir? And I ask you that. What is an heir? H-E-I-R. What is it? What's that? It's someone who inherits. Yes, it's someone who inherits something. You know, we've discussed that that our Heavenly Father has chosen us as His inheritance. Now, and yes, but as if that were not enough, God has chosen to give us an inheritance as well. And this inheritance is a two-parter. The first part of our inheritance is that we will be inheritors of God. Now, lest you think this is trivial, truly this is probably the most amazing inheritance we could ever receive. God our Father wants to give Himself to us. And the Scriptures describe what this gift of Himself to us will be like. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 3-4, through the Apostle Paul comments, or the Apostle John comments, he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or no longer any crying or any pain. What a day that's going to be like. What an inheritance that is. You see, God will have a very special, personal, tender relationship with us. We are His children, and our dear Abba wants us to be with Him, to minister to us. And even more than that, we want Him to be with Him. Truly, when we receive this part of our inheritance, God Himself, then all the sorrows of this life will seem like absolutely nothing. Like the adoring wife in the Song of Solomon, our hearts will rejoice that my beloved is mine and I am His. What a day that will be. And if this part of our inheritance were not enough, there's a second part to it as well. 
Notice in verse 17 that we are fellow heirs, or in some translations it says joint heirs with Christ. Now to illustrate this concept of being a joint heir, my mother and father own a 166-acre farm back in the heart of Nebraska. Now when my parents pass away someday, and I hope that's a long time in the future, the farm will be passed on to myself and my three sisters and brothers. And when this occurs, I and my three other siblings will be co-heirs. We will be joint heirs of that farm. The four of us will own that farm together. And that's what it means to be a joint or a fellow heir. Now, according to Paul, the part B of our inheritance is that we will be fellow heirs with Christ. That means that whatever Christ owns, we will share ownership of it with him. So the question becomes, what does Christ own? And actually, the writer of Hebrews helps us with this question, saying this. He says that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So what does Christ own? All things. So what do God's beloved adopted children own? Yes, we own everything. Everything. What Jesus receives by divine right, we also receive by divine grace. We own everything in all of creation together with our brothers in Christ. My brothers and sisters, we are filthy rich. We are. God has given us Himself, His Son, and everything else in all of creation on top of that. Have you ever stood in awe of the beautiful nighttime sky? Well, guess what? You own it with Christ. Have you ever looked at the marvel and splendor of Yosemite, guess what? You share it with Jesus. Ever wanted to own your own galaxy? Well, probably not. Something you've ever really thought about. But if you ever thought about it, guess what? you got your choice. You can pick one. Ever been to the Grand Canyon and gazed in wonder at the sheer size and the beauty of the colors? Well, you and I co-own all these things with Jesus. And what we can see here on this earth is only a small little pittance of the perishable taste of the incredible inheritance that God has granted to us. In Peter's words, he said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You see, the inheritance that God has for us is eternal and it's imperishable. It's an inheritance that is greater than even what we see here and now. It's beyond our wildest imaginings. And why in the world do you think that God would exercise such 
such staggering extravagant toward us. Why would He do that? Yeah, because He loves us. He loves us dearly. How many of you have children? Raise your hand. Well, let me pick on one of you for a moment. I'm going to pick on you, Tim. It's your day, bro. <laughs> Stand up. How many children do you have? One. Okay, well, what is this one child's name? Uh, Chad. And how old is Chad? 28. Okay, he's 28. And I have a question for you, okay? If it was within your power, would you withhold any good thing from your son Chad? You wouldn't. Now, why why would you not do that? Because I love him. Because you love him. Because he's your child. Yeah. Thank you. You passed the test. <laughs> <laughs> because of the great love which he has for him. You see, this, this impulse that we have that Tim just illustrated... As parents, this desire to give our children every good gift that is within our power is a reflection of our Heavenly Father's desire to give us an immense inheritance. And referring to your outline, as God's beloved adopted children, He has given us Himself as our inheritance along with everything in all of creation as co-heirs with our brother Jesus. So in the context of our assurance as God's adopted children, we have looked at the identification of God's children, the cry of God's adopted children, the Spirit's testimony to God's children, and the inheritance of God's children. Now, last but not least, we will look at the suffering of of God's adopted children in the last part of verse 17. Notice that Paul says, And if children heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Now the if indeed near the end of this verse is similar to the if in the front part of this verse. Both of these ifs have the sense about them of because... We are God's children, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, surprisingly, because we suffer with Him. Now, this seems like a rather odd way for Paul to end this passage about our glory as God's adopted children, but suffering is part and parcel of being one of God's kids. And the rest of Scripture affirms this reality. All of us suffer because... We are tainted with sin, and we live in a sin-infested world. And as a result of this sin, they're suffering for everybody. Sickness, broken relationships, and ultimately even physical death are a reminder of the sinful world that we live in. Even more so for God's adopted children, suffering is inevitable. The Apostle John made this observation. He said this. He said, The light, Jesus, has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You see, 
the world hates everything and anyone that sheds light on their evil deeds. Now, in Jesus' case, the religious leaders of the day, the very ones who should have recognized him as their Messiah, they were the ones that sought to kill him. Why? Because he exposed them for the hypocrites that they were. What did Jesus say to us who would follow him? Here's Jesus' words. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Guess what? If they persecuted you, they will also, they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. When we live as salt and light in the midst of darkness, those in darkness hate us. The Apostle Paul made a similar observation, commenting, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So for those who are God's adopted children, suffering is inevitable. And it's even promised. But in fact, this suffering is actually the gateway to glory. Notice the last phrase of our text today. Paul comments, If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with Him. In our present life as God's adopted children, this eternal kingdom principle will always be present. Our suffering as God's children is the gateway to being glorified with Him. And this actually makes perfect sense because this is exactly what Jesus experienced. Notice what Paul commented to the Corinthians about Jesus. He said, Being found in appearance as men, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, for Jesus, suffering was the gateway to glorification. And since we are God's children, it's no different for us. Again, notice what Paul says about our suffering in the world. In 2 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is actually producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond comparison with the suffering. And as a result of understanding that suffering is part of being a God's adopted child, and that this suffering is the gateway to glory, we can actually rejoice in our suffering. We know that God will reward us when we endure and even rejoice in it. Earlier in Romans, notice what Paul said to his readers. He said this, he said, And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations 
bring about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our heart by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God's love for us as his adopted children poured out in our hearts enables us to rejoice in the inevitable suffering of this life. So referring to your outline, suffering is an inevitable part of being God's adopted child. But as a result of enduring and in rejoicing in these sufferings, we will be rewarded and share in Jesus' glory. Now, the last thing remaining for us to talk about today is how will we apply these truths to our lives? In a group this size, it's quite likely that there are some here today that realize that you are not one of God's children. You're, you're choosing to live in sin and you're refusing God's grace. And as a result, you are reaping the chaotic consequences that sin always brings into a person's life. And maybe today, for the first time, you've heard the voice of God. He is the one calling you to become one of His adopted children. And if this describes you today, then in the quietness of your own heart, acknowledge your sin before God. Confess it to Him. And put your faith in Jesus' death on the cross on your behalf as payment for your sins. This is the very heart of the gospel that Paul talks about in the book of Romans. And if you put your faith in Christ today like I've described, be assured that you will be one of God's dearly loved adopted children. Now for those of you who have already trusted in Christ, then this week... Just rest in the beautiful reality of being God's adopted child. You know, be assured of God's vast love for you and just enjoy it. You know, living in and enjoying God's love will be the dominant reality of heaven for His children. So, why not make it the dominant reality of your earthly experience as well? I'd urge you to do that. In closing, I think it's only fitting that we look at Paul's conclusion about the marvelous realities that we've, we've discussed this morning. He said this at the end of Romans chapter 8. He said, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in joyful amazement that You, the very God of the universe, would adopt us 
as your very own children. We, we struggle to wrap our minds around the fact that you love us with the same deep love that you have for your perfect eternal Son, Jesus. We shake our heads in wonder as we remind ourselves that you invite us to cry out to you as our Abba. And we're stunned as we grasp the enormous inheritance that you have gladly given us, your precious children. You've given us because you've loved us. Lord, what else can we say other than to express our deep gratitude to you? Joyfully endure suffering while living our lives as a love response to you, the God who loves us so profoundly. And Lord, these things we choose to do this morning as your grateful adopted children. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.